Section 8 of Social Life in England, 1750-1850 by F. J. Folks Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Lecture 3, Margaret Catchpole, Part 1. May I invite you today to a remote corner of England, and ask you to associate with rather humble folk. Our heroine is a servant-maid. Her romance is her love for a smuggler, and the faithful affection of a young farmer. The greatest personages to whom I shall introduce you are a Suffolk brewer and his worthy lady, and uncommonly numerous family, one of whom was my grandfather yet it is almost impossible to imagine that men alive within our memory should have shared even as young children in the scenes i have to describe the lawlessness of the country the wild acts recorded the stilted language employed by the chief actors the strange callousness of the criminal code the very piety displayed by some of the principal characters are completely out of date and almost incomprehensible the author himself of this true romance though he only died in eighteen seventy seven evidently wrote and thought in ways quite alien to those now in vogue i shall continue what i have said about crabbe by attempting briefly to describe the county of suffolk the south folk which must occupy our attention during this lecture i do so with no apology for i believe that many a new england family tree springs from roots deeply embedded in its soil one thing realized by every child born in east anglia is that he is not one of those inferior people who are born in the shires his native land is not called after any town northampton bedford leicester or cambridge he belongs to a race not to a territorial division invented less than a thousand years ago he and his kinsmen the north folk are east anglians and the rest of the world are to him foreigners or people who come from the shears not that he is an unmixed race far from it the peasantry were in the land long before the angles arrived they are a small dark people who have survived countless invasions and will probably outlive modern civilization when you see them beating a field or covered for game and kill hares and rabbits by throwing their sticks with unerring aim you feel that they do much as their ancestors did before the dawn of history the anglian is a big blond man slow of speech and apparently somewhat dull but in a bargain he is seldom the loser the little town of hadley was once the capital of alfred's rival guthrum the dane and the norse origin of many families reveals itself in grimwood grimwade grimsey and grimes flemings and dutch french huguenots have all contributed to the population of east anglia but despite the blending of nationalities there is a strong feeling of a common tie binding all these heterogeneous elements together yet there are curious local divisions existing to this day the eastern and western parts of the county are at constant feud when the county councils were established in the eighties suffolk had to be divided into east and west because the two would not work together when last year the county was made a single diocese ipswich would not allow the ancient western monastic town of bury st edmunds to give the bishop his title and bury st edmunds scorned to submit to the richer but less aristocratic ipswich so in desperation the diocese had to be called 
St. Edmundsbury and Ipswich. To look at an ordnance map, one would say that Suffolk was very flat and eminently agricultural. The highest hill I could find was 402 feet above the sea. Seldom does the land rise over 200 feet. Yet a motor drive in Suffolk gives one the sensation of having been on a switchback railway. One is never on the level, and some of the little ascents and descents are very sharp. The beautiful church towers are usually on hills, and the churches are often placed outside the villages. The road or street, Roman stratum, on each side of which the hamlet stands, frequently runs up a hill. The lanes are narrow and muddy, and at the bottom of a hill often waterlogged. Communication must have been exceedingly difficult, a fact which explains many peculiarities of the people. Nowhere is there a sharper line drawn by nature in the county than between the agricultural land in the centre and the coast. Rarely do the cornlands reach the sea. A belt of breezy commons, bright with gorse, extends almost from Lowestoft to Ipswich, and a glance at the map shows how thin the population is. Only by branch lines of recent construction does the railway reach the Suffolk coast. Cut off by a wild tract of commons and marshes, the inhabitants of the little ports formed strangely isolated communities, and regarded with no friendly eye the villagers of the interior, marrying only among themselves and keeping carefully apart. A brief survey of the coast throws a light on the character of the people. All along the shore, the five-fathom line, sometimes half a mile, sometimes as much as three miles from the shore, marks the continual encroachment of the North Sea. Towns like Aldborough and Dunwich, once standing a mile or more from the shore, are now, as in the case of the first, threatened by waves, or like Dunwich, once a famous seaport, almost entirely washed away and submerged. Occasionally, as from Aldborough to Orford, the sea makes its own breakwater by casting up long banks of shingle, and even now for nearly ten miles save for coast-guard stations and lighthouses the suffolk foreshore is absolutely uninhabited one of the most striking features of the coast is the inland tidal rivers in the south are the stour and the orwell which converge at the important harbour of harwich and at the head of the tidal waters of the orwell is ipswich the river itself, when the tide is high, is a most beautiful estuary, with parks and woods sloping down to the water. Stoke Park, Worsted Park, Wolveston on the south, Ansbourne Priory and Orwell Park on the north. A few miles north of the estuary of the Orwell and Stour is the River Daben, which culminates inland at Woodbridge, and was the scene of many a solitary boating expedition by the famous translator of Omar Khayyam, Edward Fitzgerald. Then comes the shingle bank I have spoken of, parting the river Ore from the sea as far as Slodden, when it turns inland and becomes the Ald, giving its name to Aldborough. Great salt marshes in many places fringe these rivers and impart an air of desolation to the surrounding scenery rightly to appreciate this curious country we must divest ourselves of modern ideas forget that we can be in london in two hours ignore the fact that the commons have been turned into golf courses that the people are occupied by letting lodgings that their harvest is the holiday season 
and that we can motor on most of the roads in comfort one must go back and not so very far after all to a time when it would have needed a guide to enable you to find aldborough and the coast and when you would have received the reverse of a hearty welcome from its inhabitants a surly race who viewed strangers with a suspicious eye and no wonder since they had the best of reasons for concealing the way they got their wealth you must transport yourself into this past if you would wish to understand what the poet crab has to tell you about his native place i think i caught something of his spirit when i went to aldborough to prepare myself for writing this lecture it was on a chill december day damp and cold with a northeast wind i had had a cold for a week and it lay very heavily on my chest so my spirits were the reverse of buoyant rain was falling as i made my way along the deserted high street and walked to slawden quay where crab was born and as a young man worked at rolling casks from the hookers to the shores a dirty sea at low tide was breaking against the shingle bank and on the other side was the valley of the auld and dreary marshes stretching to the low uplands on the horizon on the rising ground above the town rose the church tower of aldborough and one could well imagine what a dreary home the desolate quay and the squalid little town must have been when the only approach was by the harbourless sea or by sandy tracks over a bleak moor or by the sluggish river winding through the marsh the peculiarities of east anglia both inland and on the coast are reflected in its inhabitants it is a country which by its isolation has fostered strong originality in all classes manifesting itself frequently in a species of coarseness of fibre and sensibility the people have not a character for high intelligence at any rate in suffolk where silly is the epithet applied to the county despite this fact however no part of great britain has produced so many worthies of the highest order in almost every one of these the animal is very strong and the intelligence is dominated by practical considerations suffolk and norfolk respectively have bred perhaps the two greatest of english statesmen cardinal wolsey and sir robert walpole wolsey impressed his contemporaries by his native force and arrogance and bishop creighton explains in his biography of him how sane a view he took of his country's position in regard to the politics of europe walpole with the tastes of a boorish squire little delicacy of mind and a cynical contempt for mankind was an unrivalled financier and minister in days of material prosperity in the forefront among the pioneers of english science stands the famous suffolk name of bacon in his great achievements and his equally serious faults francis bacon viscount verulam is an east anglian his luminous mind is seen in the singularly lucid english in which his thoughts are expressed his rough common sense reveals itself in the way he brushes aside the speculative theories of the philosophers and goes directly for results based on practical experiment and on the darker side the unscrupulous way in which he crushed friend and foe alike in order to attain the position which his genius entitled him to take in the country discloses the same lack of sensibility which we frequently see in the east anglian character among the great judges few take a higher place than lord thurlow 
scarcely any one could inspire such fear by the mere force of his personality than he whether in the house of lords when he crushed the duke of grafton who twitted him for being a noah's homo or in the law courts or at his own table in private life where in his old age he could make the greatest wits of the day retire in discomfiture he showed himself an antagonist to be dreaded yet as crabb attests under that rough exterior beat a kind heart not only the genius of nelson the son of a norfolk rector as well as the moral failure which cast a stain on the unparalleled lustre of his name may be traceable to his native soil even to-day there is one to whom england looks with confidence though his stern practical ability inspires but little affection among whose proud and well-deserved titles is the name of his mother's home an out-of-the-way suffolk village for on entering the peerage earl kitchener assumed the title of baron kitchener of khartoum and aspel footnote the lecture was delivered march nineteen sixteen footnote the force of character which produces great men is certain almost to manifest itself for evil also and we recognize the truth of much of crabbe's stern realism in the characters to which he introduces us as dr jessop a singularly acute observer of the norfolk villager points out the criminal annals of east anglia disclose outbursts of remarkable ferocity on the part of its inhabitants side by side with this vindictive spirit is a proneness to superstition generally of a gloomy character aldborough has records of many portents and apparitions in its annals nowhere was the witch-finder more active than in suffolk and even in the latter half of the nineteenth century a woman suspected of being a witch was done to death in the neighbouring county of essex we have seen in crabbe how what was then called enthusiasm in religion drove more than one of his characters into a despair of gloom not that there was not a great deal of genuine piety the churches of east anglia are the glory of the countryside and many of the most magnificent are due to the liberality of its traders and manufacturers in the days when it was one of the industrial centres of english life indeed it may not be merely local vanity which explains the contemptuous epithet silly as carrying with it not a slight but a compliment the word being used in its older sense as the equivalent of the german zelig pious nowhere did the reformation obtain a stronger hold than in the diocese of norwich and its role of protestant martyrs in the reign of mary was exceptionally large forcefulness for good or evil superstition and genuine piety all play their part in the story i am now about to ask you to consider the popularity in suffolk of the life of margaret catchpole though the literary merit of the book is not great is a testimony that her tale strikes a sympathetic chord to this day i must preface what i have to say by a few remarks about the author of the book the rev richard cobbold was the son of john cobbold a wealthy brewer of the cliff house ipswich by his second wife who plays so important a part in the story i am about to put before you mrs cobbold was a very remarkable woman a friend of sir joshua reynolds an author of some repute and what was most unusual at the time an eloquent public speaker 
she married mr cobbold when he was a widower with fourteen children and had by him a large family herself six sons and a daughter richard was the youngest son being born in seventeen ninety seven and dying in his eightieth year in eighteen seventy seven he was rector of wortham a parish in the north of suffolk an author of repute in his day highly respected as a devoted clergyman a strong churchman and a keen and active sportsman in eighteen forty five he brought out margaret catchpole in his preface he says the public may depend upon the truth of the main features of this narrative indeed most of the facts recorded were matters of public notoriety at the time of their occurrence the author who details them is a son with whom this extraordinary female lived and from whose hands he received the letters and facts here given the story of margaret catchpole told in the novel is briefly as follows she was born at nacton a village not far from ipswich on which was then a somewhat desolate heath on the north bank of the orwell her father was head ploughman to a farmer named denton a well-known breeder of suffolk cart-horses from childhood she was known as a good rider and she obtained her first place as a servant by catching a very spirited pony of mr denton's whose wife was taken suddenly ill and riding at a gallop to the town and through the streets crowded on a market-day to fetch the doctor as she had not had time to saddle or bridle her steed she rode him bareback with a halter to guide him a really remarkable feat for a child of fourteen as she grew up she found a suitor in a clever sailor named william laud originally a boat-builder who had been a pupil in navigation says the author under a mr crabbe a brother of the poets footnote this seems impossible from what is known of the crabbe family the poet had no brother who could have taught laud End of footnote. laud's education and abilities seem to have been above his station in life and had he been able to keep straight he would have risen to the command of a merchant ship and possibly even to officer's rank in the royal navy as it was he attached himself to a man named bargood an unscrupulous employer of smugglers and became one of the leaders of that highly organized body which in the war with france was bent on defrauding the revenue laud's influence was singularly bad for the catchpole family two brothers came to a bad end another enlisted and disappeared for years and the whole household fell under suspicion of being in league with the smugglers now comes the undoubted fiction in the story margaret catchpole particularly requested that her husband's name should be concealed if her adventures were ever published in order that her children might not know she had been a convict consequently we must assume that the honest lover called john barry of levington the parish next to nacton is fictitious and probably that he and his brother edward are introduced to heighten the romance anyhow in the story laud was severely wounded by john's brother edward who commanded the preventive men on felixstowe beach and was supposed to have been killed margaret nursed laud in his concealment and convalescence and later on when she was in service at mrs wake's he attempted to carry her off by violence she was however protected by the faithful john barry and a strange old fisherman nicknamed robinson crusoe john barry was seriously wounded on his recovery he proposed to margaret who refused him 
and in desperation the rejected lover emigrated to the colony of new south wales in australia in may seventeen ninety three margaret entered into service with mrs cobbold of the cliff ipswich the house still stands adjoining the well-known brewery on the shore of the river orwell even to this day it lies at the fringe of the business part of ipswich at the end of the docks and quays beyond it is country and the well-wooded banks of the beautiful river the girl was under nursemaid and also helped the cook in the evening she soon manifested exceptional abilities for not only did she learn all the lessons which the children had to prepare but on three occasions she saved the life of members of mrs cobbold's large family she rescued two little boys george and frederick the latter my grandfather from the fall of a wall which would inevitably have crushed them she saved another henry in ipswich when he had fallen into deep water and when an older boy named william had gone alone down the orwell to shoot ducks and his boat had been overturned it was by her courage and resource that the lad was recovered in a state of insensibility on the latter occasion laud reappears suddenly he had been pressed into the navy and was now necessarily leading a more reputable life and margaret could avow her partiality for her lover without shame in seventeen ninety four laud fought in lord howe's victory of the first of june and apparently distinguished himself highly in the action being one of the crew entrusted with bringing home a valuable prize in the story laud is represented as a man naturally with good impulses but weak and unstable and the villain of the piece is the sailor who was laud's mate in his smuggling days one luff luff was determined to bring laud back to the smuggling business laud on the contrary desired to lead a virtuous life with margaret accordingly when he was free of the navy he brought his prize money and left it at mr cobbold's house but margaret who had now become cook and had got into trouble by entertaining too many sailors refused to see her lover of course not knowing it was he luff then turned up and as she refused to give him information about laud threw her into a well from which he was rescued with difficulty luff was killed soon after in a desperate encounter with the preventive men and from what margaret's brother edward could gather luff had murdered laud margaret did not believe it but her conduct became so unsatisfactory from grief and disappointment that mrs cobbold despite all she had done for the family was compelled to dismiss her from her service laud in the meantime had reformed and settled down as a boat builder and on his uncle's death he came into the business but the habit of smuggling was too strong and he returned to his old courses. End of section 8